So our scripture reading for this morning is Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 55 and 56. And also, while you're turning there, if you don't own a Bible, if you're newer to the church and you don't own a Bible of your own, we would love for you to take that Bible home with you. Um, we'd love for everyone to have a copy of the scriptures uh, of their own. So hear God's word. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, as uh, Bill said, thank you uh, for that round of applause. My name is uh, Paul uh, Brandis, and I truly uh, believe that it was your graciousness uh, these last three months that allowed us to make it without the building burning down. And uh, aren't we glad that that didn't happen? I mean, don't we get to worship in a beautiful space? And um, so, yeah, thank you for your graciousness and, and patience with us as the staff members as we tried to uh, steady the waters uh, during Bill's absence. We were so grateful that he was able to do that and so glad and excited that he is back. Um, thank you for being here with us this morning, and if you would, I, I would invite you to bow your heads with me as I ask for God's help as we open his word. Oh God, our guide, set your path clearly before us and lead us to follow you willingly for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There is almost nothing quite like the dead-end moment in a story, is there? You know, whether Harry Potter is alone in the graveyard with Voldemort and his cronies, or whether uh, Frodo is tied up in the spider's web, or the Empire has struck back and is in total control, dead ends grab us and move us to the edge of our seats. And I think this is because we're no stranger to them in our own lives. I mean, we've all experienced a dead end or two, right? Or maybe five or six. Sometimes our dead ends are silly. I mean, think of Michael Scott in the television comedy The Office, that time where he drove his car into the dead end of a lake because his GPS told him so. Have you seen this, right? I mean, that's a silly dead end. But sometimes our dead ends can be deadly serious. Sometimes our mistakes lead us to a dead end. Sometimes the mistakes of others lead us there. Or we find ourselves at a dead end simply through the brokenness of a world gone mad. And dead ends may move us to the edge of our seat when we're watching a movie or reading a book, but when we're facing one in our own life, 
not as exciting. So bear with me this morning because our big idea, what I don't want you to miss, it's not going to sound quite right at first. And if you're facing a dead end in your life right now, this big idea, it might even sound a bit unfeeling or cruel. But it's what we see so clearly in God's word in Exodus 14. And there is hope here too. It's this, God loves dead ends. God loves dead ends. And hear me, right? I mean, it's not that God loves our pain or enjoys our struggle, not at all. But the beautiful, incredible, unbelievable fact of the matter is this, that God does some of his best work in our world and in our lives at dead ends. He does some of our best work, his best work at dead ends. God loves them. And frankly, you can't miss that in this story. Now, how the heck did we get here, right? Do you remember this Moses guy? I don't blame you if you don't. It's been a while since we've talked about him here at Brookside. Uh, in Bill's absence the last three weeks, we've had guest preachers who have been, were excellent. Um, but what that meant is that we've been a little bit off series as well. And so I want to bring us back up to speed. At the end of June, we started a new summer teaching series. It was titled Deliver Us, The Life of Moses. And the bottom line idea of this teaching series is this. The world is in big trouble. We're in big trouble. And no matter how hard we try to fix the mess, whether the mess of the world or the mess in our own lives, we end up just making it worse. In the end, we see that the only hope we have of being freed from the mess is found in God's incredible work of rescue. We need to be delivered, and God's got to be the one to do it. And the story of Moses, his life, it points us to God's ongoing work of rescue in a powerful and unique way, which is why we chose, in, chose to zoom in on his life. Now, the last time we saw Moses here at Brookside, uh, God was responding to the cries of his people Israel, who were enslaved in Egypt. And God calls Moses. He speaks to him through a burning bush. Deliverance through fire, right? Deliverance through fire. I'm going to use you, Moses, God tells him. And that's when it becomes obvious. Moses is no hero. Remember all the excuses he gave? God is the hero of this story of deliverance. But God so often chooses to work through weak and messy and yet faithful people to accomplish his purposes. Well, Moses eventually agrees, and then comes the ultimate cage fight. No, not Moses versus Pharaoh, but Yahweh versus the gods, the pagan gods, little g, of Egypt and a wicked people. Yahweh versus the pagan gods of Egypt. The story of the plagues, right? Ten of them? And in the end, God wins by a knockout. Israel is spared by the blood of the lamb. Deliverance through blood. Pharaoh lets Israel go. Finally, after 400 years as strangers in a strange land, the Hebrews are making their exodus to the home that God promised them. The Israelites are marching out. The Bible, the text says about 600,000 men, perhaps as much as 2 
million people. That's quite a conga line, isn't it? I mean, because that's what's happening. Can you imagine that? The joy of victory, the anticipation of freedom, like a Jewish Mardi Gras in the desert. But now, it's been a few weeks, and it turns out the desert is hot, sort of like Kansas City the last few weeks. It's dry. Your feet hurt. But still, slavery is in the rearview mirror. Goodbye fear, goodbye grief, hello something, anything better. It can't get worse than slavery, right? I mean, this morning, I know we've heard these stories time and time over, but this morning, try to put yourself in the place of the Israelites. It can't get worse than slavery, right? That's what you're thinking. And then, you get your first glimpse of water. The Red Sea. Okay, you think, so this isn't great, but it's not like we're in much of a hurry. Although it does seem like that Moses guy needs a map. But again, you're not a slave anymore. What is there to worry about? It feels like a dead end, but you've seen worse. And then the rumors start. Did you hear what God told Moses? I mean, if they're even really talking, the Egyptians are coming for us. Pharaoh changed his mind, wants us back as slaves, coming with his entire army, even the chariots. It's just a rumor, but now you start to worry a bit. And actually, God did tell Moses about this dead end. And that's a bit odd, to me at least, isn't it? I mean, I know that when I'm at a dead end, I feel like I struggle around, I'm trapped, I'm confused. And then maybe God starts to show up. Then he starts to intervene. It's almost like I have to alert God to my dead-end status. But that's not what this story teaches, is it? Look back with me, and we're going to be in Exodus 14. Bill read the end of Exodus 13 to set up the story. Look back now at Exodus 14, verses 3 and 4. This is God speaking to Moses, and this is what he says. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. This story teaches that not only does God love dead ends, but that to him, dead ends are no surprise. To God, dead ends are no surprise. And even more than that, not only are dead ends no surprise to God, but oftentimes the dead ends are part of the plan, right? I mean, that's clear from the text. God is telling Moses this is what's going to happen and why it's going to happen. He clearly has something big in the works. The dead end of the Red Sea was part of God's plan. He's setting a trap for Egypt for his glory and honor. Hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I know that's a tough one. It's a difficult moment for us in the Bible that we have to wrestle with. It doesn't do any good to ignore it or pretend it's not there. You know, I remember hearing these stories as a kid. And thinking to myself, how is that fair to Pharaoh? I mean, it's like he had no choice in the matter. God hardened his heart, right? 
But what I missed as a kid and what's made especially clear in the story of the plagues is that Pharaoh first hardened his own heart. Pharaoh first hardened his own heart. You know, I, I'd invite you, revisit the story of the plagues this week or, or download that sermon from one of our other campuses on the podcast. Listen to it and look and listen to all of the opportunities that Pharaoh had to repent and turn to God. All of the opportunities that he had to soften his heart. But he didn't. Instead, Pharaoh declared open war on Yahweh and Israel, Yahweh's people. So yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But in the end, all God did was give Pharaoh what he really wanted. And I know you're, you're probably still thinking, well, that doesn't quite do it for me. I still don't get it. Is God really going to wipe out this entire army? It seems a bit over the top. It seems cruel, mean, vicious even. Isn't there another way? You know, I've had those exact same thoughts about stories like this. You know, but the fact is, when I have those thoughts, I'm having them from a very comfortable, very safe position. That's where I'm at asking those questions, and, and that's where I'm at when I'm wondering how it is that God could do this. But I guarantee you the Israelites were not asking those same questions. For 400 years, the Israelites had been enslaved, oppressed, murdered, and raped by this army, by this nation. You know, I sit here and say, how could God do this? But the Israelites say, how could God not do this? But actually, at this point in the story, God hasn't done anything yet. The Israelites are still surprised, confused, turning to one another, asking, did Moses really just lead us out of slavery to be slaughtered or to be captured again? But again, God isn't surprised. This dead end, even though the people of Israel don't understand it yet, is 100% part of his plan. And I want to make sure you hear me say this morning that I don't for one minute presume to know all that God is doing in your life right now, all of the dead ends that you find yourself in. But I do think what I can say is that wherever you feel stuck, wherever you feel like you're at a dead end, God's not surprised that you're there. As we look across our ever-changing, broken world or into our own wounded stories, God's not shaken. He's not surprised. One author wrote, sometimes coming to the Red Sea is just as much part of God's plan as crossing it. Because remember, God loves dead ends. Now we're at the part in the story where the scary rumors turn into terrifying reality. Off in the horizon, the Israelites see the dust cloud of 600 chariots and the endless marching of the world's fiercest army. This picture is a little imaginative help here from Ridley Scott's latest movie, Exodus, Gods and Kings. I mean, yikes, right? So what ensues in the Hebrew camp? Panic, of course. But here's the thing. Instead of empathizing with the Israelite situation, 
At this point, I think we more or less turn our nose up at them. I know I do, or I'm guilty of that. Ah, what's wrong with these Israelites? They're afraid? Just two weeks ago, they saw what God did with the ten plagues. What did they have to fear? Said us, in our comfy little chairs and our comfy little lives. Try to put yourself in your place. There's a massive, unpassable water of body, body of water in front of you and an entire army of trained killers behind you barreling down. How quickly would you forget about the ten plagues? Think about it. Your whole family is there. Your husband, your wife, children, aunts, uncles, friends. There's no Geneva Convention. There's no little white flag of surrender. There is only inevitable pain and death racing towards you as fast as the horses can run. Look back with me at the text. Jump down to verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Jump to the end of verse 12. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. For the Israelites... Even slavery looks pretty good right now. And can you blame them? I know I can't. You see, dead ends push us to turn back. Dead ends push us to turn back. At some point, we think, that can't be right. Surely we've made a wrong turn somewhere. The first sign of struggle, and we begin second-guessing both God and ourselves, confident that our situations would be better if only fill in the blank. And we forget everything. We forget that God isn't surprised, that he isn't fooled. We forget that the dead end might actually be part of his plan. And now, of course, there are times where we make mistakes, times when we end up in places that God never wanted us to be, times when the Red Sea is of our own doing, and we actually do need to turn back. But as we've already seen in this story, so often the Red Sea is one of God's tools in a much larger plan. And those times are the truly confounding moments, aren't they? The ones that don't make any sense. You look at decisions you've made at work and you've been faithful, but it's not what you thought it would be. And you've done everything you could as a parent. And yet, even still, your kids aren't making choices like you'd hoped they would. Or you've been following Jesus a long time, but now you're sick. Or lonely. Or maybe you're a newer Christian and you just thought this would be all a little bit easier. And you don't want to say it out loud, but you're thinking of turning back. Maybe God doesn't care about me as much as I thought he would. Has anyone been there? Has anyone not felt that way at some point? 
I mean, I know I have felt that way. And my guess is that many of you are probably feeling that way right now, in this moment, this morning. I remember in my first year as a youth pastor, I was facing three incredibly difficult and messy situations with some students. At the same time, you know, when it rains, it pours, right? I was 22 years old and I was simply clueless. It sure felt like I had the Red Sea in front of me and an army racing behind me. And part of me wanted to turn back, whatever that would have meant, I don't even know. And I remember calling a close friend of mine from college who was also doing youth ministry and just pouring out my broken heart to him. I think I said, what are we even doing here? And there isn't a miraculous ending to this story in the sense that, you know, the waters blew back, right? That's not always how God works. You know, my friend talked me off the metaphorical edge and I started to inch forward into the dead-end sea in front of me, taking a few faith-filled steps into the water. I moved forward in faith because God loves dead ends, doesn't he? You know, eventually those situations with the students resolved. The Red Sea parted, maybe not in a miraculous moment, but over time. And I even learned a thing or two. And I know that isn't quite the same. If any Israelites were sitting here this morning that had experienced this, they'd be going, wait, wait, a couple sticky situations with your middle schoolers doesn't, doesn't equate as a one-to-one with an army racing toward us and a body of water in front, but it's a principle, right? I mean, think about it. The Israelites aren't even an army. I mean, there might be two million of them, but we're talking about two million brick-laying slaves, more than half of which are women and children. They're not exactly equipped to take on, again, the world's most fiercest army. This is the dead end to end all dead ends. I found this picture, and I think it sums up their situation. One way, but also dead end. It's like, whoops, (laughs) trapped. (laughs) And as the terror in the camp continually continues steadily towards full-out panic and chaos, As an Israelite, what do they notice? They notice the giant pillar of cloud. You've been following this cloud for weeks now. In fact, you've been wondering if it's contributed to some of Moses' direction problems. But what does this cloud do? Look back with me at the text, verses 19 and 20. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Incredible, right? This cloud, it moves perfectly between the Israelites and the Egyptians, moves perfectly between life and death. And this is already miraculous, but you know the story. It gets better, What happens next may be familiar to us, but try to picture the scene. It's a scene that's so incredible that it's unbelievable. And I imagine that it was unbelievable for the Israelites too, except they were seeing it with their very own eyes. Verses 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. 
And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, don't miss the magnitude of this moment, right? The dead end to all dead ends, the impossible dead end in front of them has miraculously become a wide-open highway. And of course, the Israelites take it. I I imagine their first few steps were tentative, right? (laughs) But after that, what are you going to do? Hang out for the army to to come and get you? No thanks, Bob. I'll take door number one, the wide-open highway through the sea. And here's the part of the story that blows me away. The Egyptian army follows them. (laughs) I mean, really, what were they thinking? Again, the Israelites had no choice. They had to walk between the walls of water. (laughs) Do you catch that imagery? Can you imagine that with me? The walls of water. If you're an Israelite, of course you're taking those steps. Of course you are. But the Egyptians, who in their right mind goes in if they don't have to? And I think this reveals something about Pharaoh. I think it reveals, I think it shows just how hard his heart was. It shows just how much he hated Yahweh and Yahweh's people. Well, the ending of this story is predictable, isn't it? This has been God's plan all along. The waters hold out just long enough for his people to be delivered, but the whole army of Egypt drowns. An incredible, unforgettable, unbelievable, decisive victory for God. Deliverance through water. And in an entirely new way, the people of Israel experience Yahweh. He's not just theory anymore. You see, this is because dead ends reveal our God. Dead ends reveal our God, don't they? When there aren't any other options, when there isn't any other way, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, God shows up, in those moments, isn't he more fully revealed to us than ever before? Don't we experience him in a deeper and more tangible way? You Maybe your Red Sea parting wasn't quite as miraculous as this story, but can't you think of a time where God showed up in some way at a dead end in your life? I know I can. Moments in my life where God's presence and his deliverance has been undeniable. You look back with me at verse 13. This is the the, the people, this is Moses' response to the people's complaint. People's complaint of the situation they're in. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Church, Hear me this morning. The Lord fights for his people. The Lord fights for his people. We've told that story, right, of the Lord fighting for his people. A battle won so decisively, and they did not even have to lift a finger. And look at how they respond to the Lord fighting for his people. Verse 31. 
Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Here's the hard truth. There are certain things that we just cannot learn when life is easy. And this is because when things are going well in my life, I assume it's because I'm awesome. (laughs) Right? I mean, I assume I'm just that good at living life, and I've done it on my own, and that's why things are going really well. I know I'm guilty of this. Ashley knows I'm guilty of this. (laughs) Is anybody else with me, right? And of course, God is able to reveal himself to us when things are great. I'm convinced that he does over and over again. In fact, I'm convinced that the reason that things are great is because God's revealing himself. The trouble is I don't notice it until I have to. I don't notice it until I have to. It reminds me of another person in the Bible who faced some dead ends, Job. He suffered more than just about anybody, certainly more than I've ever suffered, and he battles with God over it. But at the end of the battle, after God has fully revealed himself, Job declares, my eyes had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Faith became real for him at the dead end. Or consider this quote by C.S. Lewis. It's Bill's first Sunday back, so I had to. I had to throw him a bone, right? <laughs> if you guys don't know, Bill's been studying even more than he already had C.S. Lewis the last three months. So. Uh, but this is so good. This is so good and hard. Lewis writes, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's hard to hear. It's hard to think about God shouting to us through our pain. But part of the reason that that's hard is because you know it's true. Dead ends wake us up. They change and they shift the conversation and they reveal our God. It's one of the reasons that God loves them. It's one of the reasons that God loves dead ends. You know, as we prepared this sermon as a teaching team, Really naturally, our conversation drifted to a few of our dead ends as a church. Because that's the thing, right? Israel faces this dead end of the Red Sea together, corporately. And so we started talking. I wasn't around for all of them, but there's some incredible stories. For instance, 18 years ago, uh, we only had one location at the time, and we didn't even own it. Uh, we We were renting out Overland Trails Middle School in Overland Park. We had been around as a church for almost a decade without a permanent home, and we had been saving and praying and waiting for that moment. And our elder team was faced with a choice, a dilemma, start building or give a large gift to a church plant in Romania. In the end, our elder team knew the church plant in Romania needed it more, and so they gave the money away. We started back at ground zero. Talk about a dead end, right? But that week, with no way of knowing it was coming, we received a gift of half a million dollars. Way more than we had just given away. Our own parting of the Red Sea, if you will. I have a more recent example as well. uh, A current one, actually. And one that is very, very relevant for us here at the Brookside campus. 
Back in June, we announced that we are in the initial planning stages of adding a second service. And when I made that announcement to you, I said, quoting myself here, this transition will be a challenge in many ways. And to be completely honest and transparent with you this morning, as we've done that initial planning work, this transition has felt like more than a challenge. It's felt like a Red Sea dead-end moment. I mean, think about what this transition means. I mean, right now, church is pretty great, right? 10 a.m. is a sweet time. It's not too early, but it's not so late that you can't leave right away and beat everybody else to brunch. (laughs) Right? Okay? And it's only an hour and 15 minutes long with one service. I guess maybe it's a little bit more than that when I preach, but you get the idea, right? Now, we're asking you to come more than twice as long to church, once to gather and worship and once to serve. Because that's the other thing, right? Think about what adding a second service means to all of our volunteer areas. We virtually have to double the current size of every one of our teams. Children's ministries, coffee, parking, safety, greeters, communion. This is not a simple or easy task. By almost every account, this is a Red Sea dead-end moment for us at the Brookside campus. And I'll be the first one to say, even as one of your leaders, that it is tempting to want to turn back. But what was our third point this morning? Dead ends reveal our God. And don't we want to push forward just to see all the incredible ways that God is going to reveal himself as we make this transition? Yes, it's going to be hard, challenging, difficult. We're all going to have to make sacrifices. But I truly believe that that what this dead end really means is that we're simply at at a place where God is going to have to show up. You've been at those moments in your own lives, right? Where there is no other way. You're at the dead end. If something's going to break, God's got to be the one to do it. That's where we're at as a campus right now. God has to show up. And that's both equally exciting and terrifying. There's going to be a lot of time in the coming days and weeks and months to reveal why we as a staff and leadership feel like this is the right time to add a second service. Some of the more pragmatic reasons, there's lots of time for that, and we we have those reasons. But right now, I just want to restate what I said back in June. This reason for us to add a second service, I truly believe, should be enough on its own to keep us moving forward in spite of the sea in front of us. It's this, adding a second service will help us to advance the gospel by giving more options for new people to attend. Your church planting theory and our own history in Christ's community, they both indicate that when you give people more options, more people opt. And so we believe, we're trusting God that adding a second service is going to give more people a chance to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that worth the pain of transition? Isn't that worth taking some faith-filled steps into the massive Red Sea that's in front of us? I hope it is. I hope it is. And now this morning, as we we wind down and and conclude, I, I don't want you to hear me say, I hope at no point during this message you heard me say that all dead ends are the same. Or that God will part the water in the same way every time. We know it doesn't work that way. We don't know exactly how God is going to part any of our waters. He will make it right. 
But for some of us, it won't happen the way we want it to happen, and it won't happen when we want it to happen. Not all dead ends are the same. Some suffering is inexplicable. And there are many times when we have no idea what God is up to. And frankly, there are times when no answer would possibly satisfy us in the midst of the confusion or disappointment that we are feeling. And as I reflect upon this story, even in those moments where the dead ends make absolutely no sense, I think there are three questions we should ask while sitting there. Three questions that will reveal what we need to do in light of the dead ends in our lives. It's these. God, what do you want me to learn? God, what do you want me to see? And God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want me to learn? Is there something I need to know, God, about you or about me or about our world? Teach me. God, what do you want me to see? Maybe God just wants you to glimpse his presence or see his glory. Are you watching for him at the dead end, even if the waters don't part? And God, what do you want me to do? Do I turn back because I got myself in this mess? Do I inch forward? Do I go swimming? Do I die right here? How can I be faithful even at the dead end? And I hope you all know there's really only one way any of this is even remotely possible. I mean, right? Who am I kidding? The dead ends of our lives? Is there anything more difficult than that? The only way that any of this is possible is that you have to believe that dead ends are never really the end. Not for his people. Never. Only in this place can we look for God. Only in this place can we trust in him. Only in this place can we actually thank him for the good ends. Not that we're glad for the pain. Of course not. But believing that dead ends are never really the end means that they don't define us. They don't consume us because the ultimate dead end has been dealt with. Even if we die standing at the Red Sea slaughtered by a cruel army, that's not actually a dead end. Not for us, not anymore. For Jesus faced the ultimate dead end on our behalf. You think about it. God didn't part the Red Sea for his son. No, Jesus died. And there really is no dead end worse than God on a cross. Is there? The Savior in a tomb. But as we know and as we believe and as we trust, even that didn't stop him. Jesus lives. And because he lives, he has now provided a highway through to all who believe in him a highway through sin and death and loneliness and depression and violence and disappointment and divorce and anger and lust. Can you see it? Like the walls of the Red Sea parted before us, a highway where because of Jesus, we can walk through on dry ground, safe, whole, to our home. So yeah, God loves dead ends. And ultimately, it's because he's leading us to a place where there is no death, where there is no end. Are you walking on that highway? Would you pray with me? 
Father, thank you for dealing with the ultimate dead end by sending your son Jesus to die in our place. None of us deserve that, Lord. But we are so grateful that you took that initiative. May we trust in that story. May we have faith in your son Jesus. And may we walk on that highway through sin and death to the home that you are calling us to. Thank you. We love you, Father. Amen.